My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I feel that a lot of people um, build wealth with no real kind of connection to what the end game needs to look like. And so I think we're a community of investors, particularly here in Australia, that focus on net worth as the only metric for success. And, you know, net worth is certainly one metric. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Amazon best-selling author, chartered accountant and founder of the Freedom Warrior program, Selena Kilkarni. She explores the problems people with high net worth face despite having 2 to $3 million net assets and how planting in the spring may help to stop these problems from cropping up. Kilkarni is on board to unpack what defines a high net worth individual and to explain the unique challenges people in this position often face. Despite falling into a category of wealth that most people strive for, nobody is immune to problems in their lives and people with high net worths are no exception. Obviously, it's a pretty generic term but I guess there's the technical definitions that are wholesale or sophisticated investor. And essentially, from my point of view, it's it's someone who has probably been investing to some degree for a period of time, has some experience around investing, has created, you know, upwards of two, three million dollars in net worth, and are, uh, you know, from 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 all accounts, they're doing quite well, um, and you know, really, they're just looking for that next. Kind of piece of support for for the level that they're at. I think um, you know as well. What I would say is that I think there's a general feeling that from a wealth goal perspective, that when you hit something like two, three, four, five million dollars in net worth, that you, you know you've made it and that all your problems disappear. And I think that's where this podcast really started from is this this idea that. It's not that your problems disappear, it's just that they, you know, the flavor changes. Yep, yep. And problems also come more and more actually because the more money that you have, the more ways you've got to discover on how you can protect that not only for not only for right now but also for the future as well because there'll probably be more challenges that come along the way. But we'll also touch on saying that, you know, it, it is potentially a wholesale slash sophisticated investor in terms of what we're talking about. And just to make it clear, 
the net um, asset value of say 2.5 mil for say a sophisticated investor is basically your assets minus liabilities. So just in case people don't quite understand, it's not the growth. So if you're earning, oh, sorry, if you've got an asset base of say 10 mil, but you've got a debt of say 9 mil, then you've really got like, you know, a million dollars net assets. So that's something that we just wanted to clarify because it's very, sometimes can be a bit confusing. So that's that's really important because ultimately we want to be able to sort of understand and help all the people out there who are you know on that kind of um, I guess level you can say and we want to sort of just tackle these things and looking at case studies of how we've been able to do that because there's always these challenges and we've worked with numerous clients who have come across this and I, I personally find that the first thing that they usually find is the challenge is finding great deals because. There's lots and lots in this market, especially when internet is so fast, you can actually access and see all these great deals. But the challenge is, is which deals are really, really profitable and which deals are actually going to be suitable for them. What are your thoughts on that, Selena? I think finding good deals at every stage of your wealth journey is challenging. But I think as you, you know, as you pointed out, you know, as you go from spring into summer into autumn, winter in terms of your season as an investor, um, your your motivation and your focus changes. And I think as you grow your net worth and, and you do become higher net worth, you know, preservation of capital becomes really, really the, the primary focus. Um, and, you know, what I hear from a lot of investors who, you know, I would describe as, as high net worth is they're not necessarily always looking for the killer deals. They're looking for good deals, which are in alignment with what they need at that particular point. And I think, you know, particularly where we're from, having uh, finding opportunities to grow your capital and, find you know, finding those growth deals is not as challenging as, you know, people might think. But I think finding those cash flow deals where they can, you know, actually deliver, you know, that predictable, sustainable cash flow, that's actually pretty tough. And I think, you know, from the people that I speak to anyway, that is the the great source of frustration is that they've got, you know, huge net worths and, you know, in some cases 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, but the cash flow is dismal for the for the level of net worth that they have. And, you know, I would I would argue that most wealthy people don't like the idea of selling assets in order to fuel you know, lifestyle and, and other desires. They want their wealth to grow. And so that that missing piece is, well, finding, how do you find deals that deliver that strong cash flow without taking on crazy levels of risk? I think that's, you know, a, a major concern. It is. And I totally agree with you on that side of things. And as you've just mentioned, we know clients who have a really, really high net worth. <laughs> I guess at the end of the day, what's the point of actually having so much when you can't even extract it or, or access that kind of capital to be able to deploy to do, you know, I guess generate cash? Because ultimately, isn't aren't we actually in this to actually build a portfolio or base asset base so that way it can actually create cash flow so that we can actually live a lifestyle that we choose as well? Because if you have that on paper and say, oh, you know, 20, 30 mil sounds great, but <laughs> how do you actually get those funds out to be able to sustain your lifestyle? That's a bit of a challenge. And, you know, finding deals that actually can do that for you is, I guess, where we're going to be really talking about today in, in this kind of topic. Obviously, not specifically about the deals, but specifically how do we actually change that um, way to be able to perhaps, you know, move into sort of alternative strategies or move their funds into something else that can actually generate cash flow. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I would say, I would add to that, that 
as an investor, I feel that a lot of people um, build wealth with no real kind of connection to what the end game needs to look like. And so I think we're a community of investors, particularly here in Australia, that focus on net worth as the only metric for success. And, you know, net worth is certainly one metric, uh, but I think that at some point along the journey, you've either got to, you know, try and strive for a crazy net worth and put up with the rubbish cash flow that most assets deliver or kind of earlier in the piece um, start to focus on that passive income. And so that is, I think once you hit a certain level of net worth, and, and I, this was my experience, when I had a reasonably good property portfolio in, you know, 09, 08, 09, and I started to go, well, hang on a sec, you know, I've got a, this this great balance sheet but I still felt like I was, you know, heavily reliant on my active income. And I, I kind of, that's when I started to really go, well, hang on, this, this doesn't work. This isn't, this isn't the, the right pathway. So I think that, you know, what I hear from high net worth investors now is, you know, I've, I've got lots of capital, but it isn't working for me the way that I want it to be. And that's the other thing we've got to also consider is the opportunity cost, because, you know, at this stage, a lot of the high net individuals have been able to find deals that have provided them with high uh, capital growth, which is typical. And it's great that they've spent all the time to build that up. And I, I know plenty of clients who have done that as well. You know, they've got easily 10 to 20 mil worth of assets, but they still are working full time in their job. As much as some of them might love to do it, they also want to be able to do other things that they really enjoy, like spend more time family do charity type of work and so forth, but they can't get out of it because they're still using that their, their job to also still service their current portfolio, which is challenging, you know, and they've got a nice high worth, 10 mil easily for some of these. And um, I kind of go, wow, it's, it's great that you can. I'm just looking at a family who we actually even hang out on a regular basis. I'm thinking about them now. And I was quite surprised when he told me, you know, how many properties he owned, but he was telling me every day he was stressed because he's still relying on his job. And he said, look, if I lose my job, I don't have enough money to be able to even just be able to pay down some of the debt or service the debt that we currently have. And he's paid off at least three of his properties, which he's got about, I think, six of them, but he's still stressed. And I'm thinking, how, how is that possible? You know, both you and your wife are working and you've got this massive asset base, but <laughs> still not able to sustain it. And I, I scratched my head and going, I, I, I would not ever want that for our family, nor would I have wanted that for his family. So that, hence the reason why, you know, I've had those conversations with him further and, you know, he's obviously looking to alternative strategies at this point in time. I'll tell you something funny and you can tell me whether this is true or not, but my experience, and, and I say this through the filter of maybe this is just what I attract into my life, but people I know who are, I would even describe as ultra high net wealth, um, they are still super frugal and, you know, predominant, the, you know, the, I think the stereotype is that as you become wealthier, that you start living this, you know, really lavish lifestyle and you have these insanely expensive holidays and you live in the mansion. But the more people I talk to and the more people I spend time with who, you know, not only are they, you know, fantastic investors, but they're also, you know, extremely wealthy, the more I realise that the frugality and, you know, mindfulness around spending doesn't disappear. Um, so, you know, I think, Partly that comes about because exactly what you said, they're, 
the wealth is almost like compartmentalized over here and then you've got your active income that you've got to use to support your your lifestyle you know over here and and so yeah. sometimes those two things feel very different very you know distinct it's it's really interesting and i i think it's also initially when building up a portfolio uh, whether it be an asset base of property or businesses or whatever it is you know if they've started off with nothing they would have actually ingrained into them you know over time that they've got to be able to put money away save and budget really, really well and tight. And and as the portfolio continues to grow, that habit continues to to you know move on. But it doesn't change very much because that's how they begin to build their wealth. But as soon as they start building more wealth, then they go, man, how am I supposed to continue to manage this? And that's the mindset that's got to be changed over time. And and to be able to build that asset so that way it can actually drive and provide that income or that cash flow. Otherwise, there's really no point doing it. And I'm not you know saying bad things to, to people that you shouldn't do it but it's just the mindset needs to change over a period of time in order to do that because you've got to think how do I switch from these high capital growth type of assets move them into sort of high cash flow type of assets to be able to do that and some people only do it when they're retiring because they don't they can't work you know at that point but why should we wait till when we retire when can we can actually do it earlier totally agree it's fascinating. So that's that's one of the major challenges that we see, especially when a lot of these clients, and I'll give you another example. You know, I know a client who's got easily over 10 mil plus of cash that's been in, in some funds in the past. And he's constantly saying to me, you know, I would rather you, you help me find deals that provide monthly cash flow rather than me put into something that will just return the capital growth at the end of the term. And obviously, you know, it's something that we can help with, but um, <laughs> it's just more and more I'm seeing these. Um, clients are wanting something that's going to be providing them a cash flow so that way they can sustain you know whatever their lifestyle is or maybe pay down even more debt or whatever because by the time you wait for something to grow typically it takes anywhere between seven to ten years for property to to double its value but then there's there's so many different things that can potentially happen in life and sometimes people just forget (laughs) that you know in 10 years time property's already gone up and they've already missed the boat so it's really fascinating I think the um, the issue, just to summarise, is that as people grow their sort of net worth and become more successful in whatever it is that they do, whether it's running a business or, you know, working in you know in, in a great job, the time that they have to go out and hunt for great deals, you know, becomes diminished. You know, you got family and and lots of other considerations, and so I think. A lot of the guys that I've spoken to have tried things like they've gone off to a, a Deloitte or a, you know, a Macquarie Bank, thinking that they're going to get access to some killer deals, only to find that, you know, they they're really getting a premium service, so they get invited to a lot of fancy events and things like that, but really the sort of the offers are just, you know, more of the same, more managed funds and shares and things like that, which you know, to some degree doesn't necessarily give them the outcome that they want. So I think this issue around finding investments um, can't necessarily be solved by uh, just shopping around for the the most expensive or, you know, prestigious advisors. I totally agree with you on that side of things as well because it kind of leads me into the second part which is to talk about one of the other challenges is trust because I guess the reason why a lot of the high net worth investors end up going to these companies is because it's got a brand around it. Therefore, people trust it. You know, you go to Deloitte, you go to KPMG because yes, it's been around, it's it's renowned, 
And supposedly, you know, they're supposed to deliver you on the best value. But even though when I was working in the corporate world, I've worked with these companies, they do charge by the hour and they do charge, you know, for service. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to deliver your expectations because at the end of the day, they still have a business to run. And if their business doesn't uh, successfully make a profit from it, then they don't have a business. So, you've got to also understand that they're really only there for their own profits, to be honest, in my opinion, because you know the amount of work I've given them in the past for some of the projects we've done, they've charged quite substantial amounts of money and they still ask for more even when they haven't delivered on what they've requested for. So, I think ultimately, trust comes back down to you know, who who do you want to work with it doesn't necessarily have to be big, big brands like you know Deloitte's and KPMG's and all those kind of things but you've got to also understand that when you're actually working with someone potentially or some group or company that you want to be able to work with them long term and, and this is the thing when I say to all my clients I say to them look at the end of the day I'm here for a long-term relationship I'm not here to just send you deals and then that'd be it I want to build this long-term relationship with you because ultimately it, it's going to be more than just you know business here. It's going to be a family relationship where I feel like as though I'm part of your family and part of here to support and help you as well too. And if they feel that way, and you know I feel that way as well, then there's opportunity to be able to work together. But if you don't get that feeling or the gut that something's wrong and they're just here to really upsell you on various things, then in my opinion, I probably wouldn't want to work with that person. Coming up after the break, Kilkani shares that she isn't immune to certain things herself. I know that when I was a, a very green investor, I was definitely guilty of getting suckered into good marketing. She explains how you can't have success without shedding. One of the things I was writing down today um, was a, a quote that my husband John has said to me from the day one that we got together. She reveals why reaching your goal is only the first step in the journey. I think as, as I said before, I think there's a tendency for people to go, well, net worth, that's the goal. Let me hit that goal and then I'm done. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. As she has experienced working at Deloitte in the past, Kilkani knows what it's like to be on the other side of the fence. Many years later, she went through an impactful exercise with people who could have been her peers. About five years ago, I started to interview um, a series of high net worth investors who had either been with, you know, like a, one of the big four or they'd been with BT or Macquarie Bank. And I asked them about the experience um, and, you know, specifically from the viewpoint of did you in fact get access to better investment opportunities and the sense I got was a resounding no. Um, I think, you know, part of what comes with those big brands is the expectation that maybe they've got some cutting edge relationships and ability to leverage into deals that the average Joe can't. 
And certainly, you know, that, that wasn't the experience that, that most people had. And I think, you know, exactly as you've said, sometimes you've got to think outside the square. Sometimes you, you have to break away from mainstream thinking. But, you know, the, the expression that I've heard used over and over in, in my circles is trust but verify. So, you know, of course you want to work with people that you know, like and trust. That's, you know, ultimately the game because you want to build long-term relationships with them. But the question is how do you make sure that, you know, they're the real deal? And this is where, you know, being able to ask the right questions, do the, do the right background checks, um, formulate rules around what you want um, in terms of communication, what your expectations are as far as transparency, because ultimately, you know, what I'm really advocating for is as your wealth grows, you should want to be in control even more than when you first start out. Like you really want to be the decision maker behind every deal. And so unfortunately, I don't, I don't think there's any shortcuts. I think you can have intuition around, yes, this person seems trustworthy, um, but I, I definitely think you can't shortcut the idea of needing to ask all those pointy questions and verify and tick boxes up front. And the one thing I'll add as well too is look at their track record, past track record, you know, see how transparent they are to talk about that because if they've had some deals that have not gone bad, ask that question. I mean, I get asked all the time and I tell them, you know, transparently, yes, we have. And I'm not going to hide that. I just want to let them know that we have also, you know, managed the risks and so forth around it as well too. And that's the thing. You've got to look at it from... A, a proven track record point of view not everyone's going to you know have all the glam and the shine and all that kind of stuff but if they are just genuinely able to be transparent and show you what they've done then you know that's already a good starting point and i think that's what you need to look out for as well too when you're looking and doing research behind who you're going to actually take on as being a, a trusted advisor or someone who can actually help you source the deals because unfortunately in this market there's just so many people out there spruiking and selling this and at the end of the day, it's it's great if you can actually find someone to be able to do that. But a lot of times I've heard so many scary stories where people have just trusted this particular person and at the end of the day, they've just done you know what they shouldn't have done, which is basically look after the their own pocket and basically just charge all these exorbitant fees. And you probably may have seen a lot of these stories happen recently as well. You know, there's a large case at the moment that I've seen online um, with a particular person who's gone through and done a lot of developments and promised people that they'll get an insane amount of return but after about three or four years nothing's happened and all the assets that he he you know presumably purchased and so forth have all been frozen and now it's a long long legal battle to be able to get that back so yeah you just got to do the the due diligence and not be sold on the marketing hype and so forth Hence the reason why, you know, you and me, Selena, we don't hype up anything. We, we try to be as, as um, yeah, transparent as possible and, and share what we've learned. Otherwise, it's, it's very easy to be just sold into these marketing things that are out there because the shiny objects just only around the corner. I think one of the things we were talking about before we turned on the camera today was um, this idea that it's very easy to manipulate numbers and research to make deals look really great and... I know that when I was a, a very green investor, I was definitely guilty of getting suckered into good marketing. I would take whatever profit and loss or growth projection that someone thought was going to happen handed to me and, and just trust it verbatim. And, you know, when I then went back to reconcile how things performed in reference to what I'd been shown, it was like chalk and cheese. 
So I think one of the big areas of, you know, trust and due diligence is to really, you know, from a trust point of view, especially when you're looking back at past deals is, you know, ask them for past, you know, profit and profitability statements that they handed out and then reconcile that against what actually happened. And, you know, I think this whole idea of really stress testing these profit and losses and making sure that they're re- realistic, sometimes you can even do some of that through common sense. Occasionally you have to go and get professionals to help you, but if you're going to part with any money, you just want to be super confident that those, you know, profitability assessments are robust rather than um, what I see very commonly is, you know, particularly in the property space, people handing out these very glossy, profitable-looking brochures um, and, you know, they couldn't be further from, you know, the truth. So I think it's something to be very careful about. Yeah, absolutely. I've been there, done that, seen these beautiful developments and they're very, very glossy and they're saying, oh, this is a return that they can get. But then when you go out and do your own DD, you go, hold on, how's that possible a lot of these kind of things in a good market you know if it's up market then that's great but you know it's not always going to be the same every time because the challenge is is like what we're going through right now you know some tailwinds or headwinds that we're going through the market has taken a little bit of a slip back and ultimately when that happens then you've got to actually really consider are those values or those assets still worth them as much as it was six months ago so I guess it's it's what we're trying to say is do you do diligence at the end of the day and um, when you do find that particular person or those advisors or company to work with that you can trust, then make sure that you do actually check out and, and do a proven track record history, you know, check what they've done, see if they've had any, you know, bad dealings in the past, etc. So yeah, that, that's really interesting because at the end of the day, um, trust is a very, very important thing and it's something that needs to it will take time to build up you know i wouldn't say that you can you know meet someone the first day and you hope that you know they're going to be able to deliver on something x y and z even though they say they try try to do that but it's like you know marriage or getting to know someone you don't go and marry them the next day unless you're in frozen um but <laughs> um but at the same time at, you, you gotta let that time happen and you just got to build that relationship it's like you meet selena you know Initially, when you approached me to do a podcast together, it took a bit of time for me to get to know you. And once we built that relationship up, it's so much easier now. And I think at the end of the day, it's knowing and, and giving that time to people to be able to build that relationship and building that trust. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's that's the second one is trust. The third one we wanted to sort of just share about is one of the investors is particularly, you know, the ones that I've, I've spoken to a lot recently who are high net um, individuals as well. They've always said to us, look, we've built this great asset base, but the challenge that we face now is that what do we do next? And and they get stuck. And I guess for them, it's like having a very clear direction slash plan in place because, you know, say you build up a a portfolio and your first goal was to get, say, $10 million of assets. But after that, what is your next goal? And then they get stuck at that point because they go, how am I supposed to actually generate income from these assets that have built? And, and it's not always very, very clear, especially when the market changes in property and so forth. And, that, and hence the reason why you've got to also consider all the other factors as well. So, yeah, Celine, what, what are your thoughts on that? One of the things I was writing down today um, was a, a quote that my husband John has said to me from the day one that we got together, you know, which is success is a process of shedding. And I remember... 20 plus years ago when he said that to me I just really half understood what the heck he meant 
but as time has worn on, I've found myself, he says it all the time and I, I um, mainly in reference to clutter around the house and mess around the house that the kids leave. Um, but from a wealth building perspective, I definitely think as you become more wealthy, as you grow more successful, um, it's really important to constantly be striving for how do I simplify, how do I, you know, create flow, how do I make this easy? Because otherwise, you know, you can end up with, you know, a very complex set of affairs or a very um, time-intensive, laborious portfolio of investments that, you know, demand a lot of time and energy. And so plan is obviously a, a, a big component of that. But I, I think part of developing a plan, particularly if you are already high net worth, um, can seem redundant. So a lot of um, high net worth individuals think, well, I've, you know, I've made it, I've got my millions, I don't need a plan. But I definitely think at every stage of your wealth journey, you need to kind of create these plans within plans in order to, you know, make it not only an enjoyable experience, but one that you can actually focus on what matters, like what are the key values and metrics for the stage of the journey that you're at. Because I think, as, as I said before, I think there's a tendency for people to go, well, net worth, that's the goal. Let me hit that goal and then I'm done. Um, and so there's a sense of, um, you know, I, I hear this often, just not really sure what the next move is because you've you've hit this multiple million mark and you're not sure what to measure. You're not you're not sure what to change about your portfolio to make it more robust. You're not sure where your vulnerabilities are. You're not sure about how to optimize. And so, I think a plan is really you know an org- from my point of view anyway a, an organic kind of exercise. It's not set in stone. And I think. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people think that you you set out a plan when you start investing in your 20s or whenever 30s and that you just stick to it doggedly and then that's what gets you to where you want to go. But I think the ability to adapt, shape your plan, make tweaks on a regular basis, you know, every six to 12 months, it doesn't mean you necessarily change the overarching strategy, but I think you're, you know, the, I I think it's like a, I forget the expression, but, um, you know, you can win the war or you can win the battle. Um, so I feel like there's, there's a lot of tactics around like how do I get to the next step, the next step. But I think once you've kind of reached what I would call a high net worth status and you're moving into autumn and winter, which we've talked about before, you still need a plan. You, you still need a plan. And I think lacking that, that lack of direction is very common, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's really interesting that we talk about that because when you think about the seasons, imagine if we never planned to, I guess, decide when to actually plant, when to sow, when to actually wait for things to harvest. I couldn't imagine what our society would be like if we never actually put those things in place because not every season can be used to plant a seed. And, you know, I'll take example, strawberries. I didn't know that you couldn't plant strawberries in summer because it just doesn't grow in that in that temperature. And then when I when I realized, hold on, you got to grow in the winter, you got to plan for that. So it's a little bit like that. You know, once you reach to a certain level, whether it be, you know, reaching a status of say X, Y, and Z um, net worth or when you're reaching say a certain age or whatever it is, you got to start to think about, you know, how do you actually 
set things up so that way you don't sort of stagnate or you don't have enough. Because you know, as, as we've talked about, I've had many, many clients who have got to a point where they've got such great high net worth, but they're still at this point in time in a, not in a position to be able to leave their job, even though it, it sounds like they've got a lot of equity and they can draw those out and potentially live. But most people don't want to live off an equity. People want to be able to live off cash flow. Hence the reason why they still have active income come in because one day, if they can't work anymore, where will they be able to have reliance on? Where can they get their cash flow from? And, and hence the reason why I guess a lot of clients come out to us because we can set or provide opportunities to be able to do that at this point in time to be able to generate some cash flow from it. Obviously, this is not the podcast for it, but the thing is, is that's one of, one of the few challenges that we see is actually being able to plan out and have a clear direction because it's easy to kind of go, hey, you know, there's a great deal down there is returning 20, 30% return. But is it part of your strategy? Is it part of your plan? And if it isn't, then obviously the deal's not going to be right for you. So you've got to actually understand the reasons behind it before you can actually go and find a deal because the deals are usually the the tactic, but the plan is actually your strategy. And if you've got a goal to retire, say, you know, maybe at 50, 60 years old or whatever it is, you've got to make sure that your strategy is in place. Otherwise, by the time you reach 50 and 60, you've got nothing there. Then you'd be you know rushing with such short period of time to be able to achieve something that might not be feasible you know in that period of time the only thing i would say in the in the sort of under the umbrella of no plan is i think a lot of um people that i've you know shared time with and who've become clients one of their big concerns around the no plan is how to start to incorporate their children and family members into the game and it's a really challenging one because you know in some cases having kids be involved can sometimes be, um, you know, a a help and a hindrance to them because you want to help your kids understand the, you know, the investment game and how to grow your wealth, but you don't want to disable them either. So there's the, you know, creating a family investment charter and, um, you know, setting down values and principles for how you want to grow your wealth. I mean, that's, that's really all part of the plan as well. Thank you to Selena Kilkarni, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short six months. To register interest, Text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, 
scale quickly, and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.